Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. In this podcast, I talked to Ben Grimes, a retired Army judge advocate who left the service after 20-some years and moved on to become an ethics attorney at the Department of Justice, which he did for several years, but always had a desire to help people grow. And so he leveraged his Army experience, obtained a certificate in coaching, and is now a leadership coach for attorneys and firms. And so we're going to hear from Ben about his journey from West Point through the Army JAG Corps and the Department of Justice to becoming a leadership coach. So Ben, again, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. Uh, I was looking at your profile. So you're one of those lepers, aren't you? I am, Tom. I noticed that you had a Bachelor of Science degree in German. Yeah, I started at West Point I got my Bachelor's of Science in the Humanities in German, and then promptly never used it. I did spend my first tour as a judge advocate in Germany, but by then I was pretty lazy with my German speaking. I was actually at a German transfer of authority and retirement ceremony for a German colleague with whom I worked at the Marshall Center and then was here in the United States for the last four years. So I went over that and the ceremony was in German and four years out of Germany, not that I had a good basis at the beginning, but whatever German I understood even went further south, showing again that foreign language is a perishable skill. Absolutely. I still listen to the German news on uh, one of those apps on the Roku. I still listen to the German news every now and then to try and keep a little bit fresh, but I'd be hard pressed to not embarrass myself if, when I get back to Germany. Yeah. So you were a West Point grad and you first came out and were flying Blackhawks, I saw. What year did you graduate? I graduated in 96 and promptly picked up the best aircraft platform around and managed to to fly a little bit in South Korea and at Fort Campbell, Kentucky before getting picked up for the FLEP program. Well, my uh, funny thing, my, my son graduated West Point class of the COVID class of 2020, Blackhawk pilot. He just left Seoul, South Korea last week. And he and I are headed out to Fort Carson next week, where he'll begin his second tour. So there's a, there's some connection there already, man. Yeah, well, well tell him he's got a future in the Jag Corps if he plays his cards right. <laughs> On that note, what was your decision to go from flying helicopters to being a Jag? I was flying pre-9-11. So my flight time was pretty limited. And I got into that three, four-year range as an aviator and realized I probably wasn't going to be able to fly forever. Like warrant officers were getting all the flight time. I was a commission guy. And so I was going to go into command and then go to staff and then go to staff and then go to staff and never fly. And then when I got out, I wouldn't have the flight time that was going to get me a pilot's job as a civilian. And so I realized that I said, well, if I'm going to be a staff officer, I might as well be the staffiest staff officer I can be and heard about the FLEP program at that time, just coincidentally, and decided that getting paid to go to school for another three years sounded like a pretty good gig. So I signed up for it. I did not ever 
growing up really want to be a lawyer, but just kind of stumbled into it. And it's been great. Well, you know, I that's one thing that I don't understand about the Army. And I know they have the reasons. Someone can explain it. I know the Navy, if they send you off to pilot training, they're going to get every last bit of flight hours they can get out of you. Whereas the Army has a mentality of 03 moving up. We want you to be more of a generalist and be an expert in the combat arms writ large. And so we're going to move you out of the cockpit, which always presents an interesting dilemma for you. Do you go flap? Do you resign your commission, go warrant officer? Do you transfer to another service or do you just get out? Or do you, the other option, climb that chain as the journalist they want you to be? Where'd you go to law school? NYU. So I got paid to go to school in New York and I was in New York for 9-11. Oh, so wow. that was uh, an interesting time and place to be there uh, for sure. And then you kicked around the uh, army for enough to, time to get a pension, right? About 20 years total with your, I, I did, yep. with your flying time and your law school time and, and then post law school. Yes, that's right. I, I spent the next 13 ish years after law school, first in Germany with fifth Corps, that's now retired. So fifth Corps, Iraq for a year as a judge advocate, and then back to the States to take on a trial defense service billet went to the grad course down in Charlottesville, back to the defense world, and then back to Charlottesville to teach. And after teaching, spent my last year in the JAG Corps doing intel law at the Army's Intelligence and Security Command. And I did not like that. But everything else was great. I had great people at INSCOM. The business was not the kind of business I wanted to be in. Now, when you were leaving Charlottesville as a teacher, did you know that you were on a glide slope to get out? Or was that a decision you made once you got to D.C.? No, I, I didn't know. I left Charlottesville at year 19 in service and for a two-year gig at INSCOM and got up here to the D.C. area, got into INSCOM. My wife got settled. At that point, I had been married for about 10 years. My wife is also an attorney. We got up here to D.C. She found a great job that she liked at the Federal Trade Commission. And she said that, you know, I can stay in the Army as long as I want, but we're done moving. And, and so I decided to go ahead and just look around and see what was out there. And so not long after I arrived at, at INSCOM at, to, to Fort Belvoir, not long after I got here, I started looking to see what sorts of jobs were out there and not with an intent to move right away, but just for an intent to know the lay of the land. I was like doing that early intel and that early research about just what was available, what kinds of things, what kinds of pay bans, what kinds of responsibilities, just doing the intel. And I heard about a job at the Department of Justice that totally fit me to a T. I had picked up some experience doing professional responsibility and legal ethics work at the JAG school in Charlottesville, had gotten hooked up in the professional responsibility and legal ethics community in the ABA, and found this job at the Department of Justice that was doing professional responsibility for the Department of Justice and providing kind of hotline advice to AUSAs and DOJ attorneys worldwide, really, but certainly across the country, and slotted in as the deputy into that office right away. But the timing was really interesting because I had only been here in the D.C. area about eight months when I found the job. I did some research. I applied. I had two interviews before I dropped my paperwork to retire. 
And at that point, I was at, at that point, they were anxious to have me and I was anxious to go. I was just hitting 20 years right around that time. And so I dropped a, a retirement packet that was four months out with two months of terminal leave. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And thankfully, the JAG Corps let me go. And I don't know if that's because they appreciated what I had provided so far, or they didn't care whether or not I stayed or left. But I was fortunate enough to, to have the opportunity to retire that quickly. Yeah, it always amazes me because I've done other interviews with the Army, which is known as a very bureaucratic institution amongst the services, which has forms and its processes. But on more than one occasion, I've heard JAG saying, hey, I decided to drop my papers. I wanted a quick exit and the Army accommodate me, which always blows my mind because, you know, when I was punching, I was trying to get a soft landing and I was selectively applying for jobs. And my thought was, if I got a job six months, sort of along the lines that you did, but I was cautioned that no guarantees and, you know, come on, you know, throw me a bone, but you know, hats off to the army that when you decided to break camp and, you know, go from uniform to business suit, that they're able to say, okay, we're going to help you get there. That is fantastic. Yeah. I really attribute that to the army trying to live up to what we hope good leadership looks like, which is taking care of people and recognizing that no one person really makes all that big a deal. I was the deputy SJ at Inscom. I had work to do, but at the end of the day, I was just one guy and each of us is just one person. So from the time that you applied for this job at DOJ until they made you an offer, how long did that take? I saw the posting in maybe the end of March. I interviewed a couple times and had an offer in hand in June or early, maybe maybe the first week of July. And then I started right after Labor Day, probably five months total from flash to bang, but a lot. But the last piece of that was administrative. You stayed at this place from the time that you punched out of the army until just recently, until this July. September 16th of July of 23. Obviously, you found it interesting, interesting enough to stay there for almost seven full years. Yeah. Okay. Professional responsibility professional responsibility. What was it that made that job interesting and fulfilling for you? So th this is how I describe professional responsibility work, legal ethics work generally. I imagine you think about that the same way I think about tax law, right? I want somebody to understand it, but I kind of don't care. Like it doesn't excite me at all. And I get it. It's legal ethics. I get it that most people don't find that interesting or exciting. I do. And I'm still a legal ethics nerd, even though I've transitioned out of that world as a practice. I really enjoyed it. And the, the reason that I enjoyed it so much at the DOJ in particular is because the role that I was in was again, providing that, that hotline advice to AUSAs. And what that meant was I got to touch every piece of the DOJ's practice, the criminal, the regulatory, the civil, the management issues, sometimes political issues, trial publicity issues at every stage, whether it was investigative or on appeal issues going to the Supreme Court, issues in relationships with Congress, issues in, again, management of the DOJ writ large, because all of those things involve lawyers, and lawyers are always subject to the rules of professional conduct. So I got to see 
a lot. I got to see everything from a really unique perspective. I got to see it really from the inside, touching on some of the most thorny issues related to a case. Because when there's a challenge with an attorney's conflict of interest, when there's a challenge regarding candor to the tribunal, those are really meaty issues that can have case dispositive implications. And, you know, me and the folks that I was working with, we would come in and like do the analysis and provide the resources and, and give an outline for the way a brief might be written to address those issues or the framework for steps that they can take in practice, like the practical steps to work through an issue. And then I didn't have to write the brief. That was the best part. I could parachute in, discuss the issue, and then say, you should write a brief about that. And then, you know, go have dinner with my kids. How big was your office? When I started, we were a total of 16 and there were four non-attorney staff. When I left, we were a total of 21 with three non-attorneys. So we grew in strength while I was there. The complexity and nuance of the issues that we dealt with also increased over time, mostly because the DOJ's attorney's field, the the field of attorneys got more familiar with the issues. And so they would just bring us harder and harder questions because they could answer the easy ones themselves. Which is good in a way, but also uh, makes you work a little bit harder, which no one's afraid of hard work, I know, but... Okay, you described yourself as an ethics nerd or legal ethics nerd. And by the way, I worked in our professional responsibility slash standards of conduct office. Code 61 or something? Code 13. Code 13. Code 13. Yeah. You you guys in your code numbers. Yeah, don't ask me. Anyway, so you described yourself as a legal nerd. So legal nerd, legal ethics nerd. Why did you move on? So right now I am a leadership coach for lawyers. So firms hire me or individual attorneys hire me because they are stepping into new positions of responsibility or they want their folks to be prepared for new positions of responsibility. So think about the senior associate who's becoming a partner or the junior associate who's stepping into senior associate ranks or the partner who's becoming a practice group leader. You know, uh, you've seen this, we've all seen this. A lot of times the folks who are good at the thing are not prepared to manage the thing or lead the group that's doing the thing. And so I, I help folks skill up and get their mindset right around stepping into those new positions of responsibility. I left the DOJ because I missed the opportunity to help people grow and develop in that way. I didn't realize I was going to miss that piece of being an officer as much as I did. And when I retired and joined the Department of Justice, it was great. It was a lot to learn. And the first couple of years, it was all learning. And then I got the itch to move. And so I'm like 18 months in the job, 24 months in the job. And, and all of a sudden, I'm looking for the next thing. And from about 18 months in the job until I left at almost seven years, I was soft looking for the next job the whole time. I had done some interviews. I got some offers. And none of them were giving me what I wanted. I was fortunate enough to to transition at a pretty senior civilian level. And so it wasn't just looking for extra pay. I was actually looking for the next right job. And none of the things that I applied to were that job. And I finally got to the point when I where I realized what I was missing. What I, I put my finger on what it was and it was this um, this opportunity to help other people grow. 
And about the same time, this is, this is like co coincidental to the same way I learned about law school. <laughs> like I real I made this realization of what it is I needed or what it is I wanted or what, what I wanted my future to look like. And at the same time, learned about a way to get there. And so I realized that I wanted to help other people grow. And at the same time, I discovered that coaching is like a real thing. And I, I know that's not a surprise to a lot of people, but to me, it was a surprise. And not only did I learn about coaching, I learned about coaching and that lawyers and law firms are doing it too. Not a lot. It's still pretty new in the legal space, but you know, career coaching, executive coaching for CEO types and other management folks in commercial business. It's been out there for, for a couple of decades in the legal practice. It's still pretty new, but there are a handful of firms, particularly big firms who are bringing coaches on either um, ad hoc as uh, kind of outside coaches, or some of them are actually hiring coaches to be in-house, exec essentially executive coaches for their attorneys. And uh, that's not the skills-based stuff. That's actual mindset and leadership skills coaching, not just like how to write a brief coaching. Yeah. I want to come back to coaching, but to get there, you just didn't hang a shingle. You went over to Georgetown and got a certificate in leadership coaching. Tell us about that program, what it entailed. I mean, I saw that it was basically, according to your profile, you started in January, you completed that certificate in July, just about the time you're leaving the Department of Justice. But what does that entail going through the leadership certification program? So the leadership coaching certificate program at Georgetown really is an, an executive coaching training program. You had another guest on recently uh, that talked about the International Coach Foundation and this kind of international body that sort of certifies coaches. There's no real certification requirement to be a coach. Anybody can go out and hang their shingle and say, I'm a coach today. But the ICF has a set of standards and a code of ethics that it expects coaches to adopt who have been certified by that organization. Not a requirement, but it is kind of a, a step up in quality. And the Georgetown program is one of the many programs that are accredited under the ICF. And so it teaches folks to work with individuals and work with organizations to develop that leadership capacity. Now, it's not perfect. And, and quite frankly, one of the things that I found fault with the Georgetown program is that it really focused a lot on the, on the coaching side of things. And I think it creates great coaches, wonderful listeners, great questioners, really helpful methodologies to work through problems and challenges, but it doesn't do a, a, a really strong job of talking about leadership. It really, I think, is creating plenty of coaches who can kind of coach anybody and coach executives and coach people who happen to be in leadership positions, but it, it doesn't really focus on the leadership aspect. And the program itself doesn't have a unique leadership philosophy. It doesn't help the students develop their own leadership philosophy. And that's something that I think is important. So are you drawing on your leadership from your time in the Army, obviously, of your West Point education and then the application that you had for over 20 years as a Black Hawk pilot and as a JAG? That's what you're tapping into. That's what I'm tapping into. And so, you know, folks who have been in the military at any for any stretch of time have been exposed to leadership that is 
programmatically developed and refined. It's not always perfect by any stretch, but there has been a sincere effort taken to increase the quality of leaders that develop as they grow. So, you know, every time you attain a new rank, almost every time you attain a new rank, you're going to another school, whether it's the captain's course or the graduate course or uh, leader, leader education, you know, the war college, all of these courses are, are helping to develop leadership capacity and skills in ways that our civilian counterparts are not getting at all. And the exposure to those programmatic leadership development courses and the exposure to different, often very good exemplars of leadership that we get to work with, that's what I draw on. And that's what's informed my kind of philosophy and spin on leadership, what, ma what makes a good leader. You know, after I had my interview with Jessica, who was the only other coach that I've had on my program, I was contacted by you and I was contacted by another former Navy JAG who turned coach. And I actually have been working with him. And it's really an interesting process. And one of the first things he challenged to me is, hey, when you hear a coach what do you think a coach is and what are you trying to get out of this? You really don't necessarily think about that on the customer side of that. You know, you have your own connotations of a, of a coach. And so you have to sort of get back and think about, and my takeaway was it is I've only had a couple of sessions, but it really requires you, in my opinion, to really get to know yourself. And I find it's helpful because you have to really look at where it is you want to go. And sometimes we don't know where we want to go, but you have to be honest with yourself about what your, your self-perceived strengths and vulnerabilities are. And I think that is something that a lot of JAGs leaving the service could probably highlight for you is their vulnerabilities and not necessarily mm -hmm. their strengths as they're trying to move out of this institution, which they've served for 20 to 30 or even just five years. You're exactly right. I think the one of the values of coaching is to give the client an opportunity to see their own situation a little bit more objectively. When we have clients, commanders come to us with a challenge or a problem, it's often pretty easy for us to look at it objectively, to bring that lawyer objective lens to it. But when it's us, it's hard to turn that vision around and look at us. And having a coach to talk these issues through with gives us the opportunity to turn the lens around and look at us. And that exploration of our own situation really often makes a solution or a direction much more clear, often very quickly, surprisingly quickly. But it's being in that conversation and having that neutral reflection to look back at ourselves. That's the value. That's the real trick. And it, and it doesn't, you know, like it's not rocket science, but it is tremendously valuable. And it's not always easy to get there without somebody to reflect back with. Yeah. And I found it's helpful because, you know, we talked about things, uh, not to expose at all, but things that I know I've been putting off because... I think our A-type personalities, we want to come in being the best instead of admitting that, hey, maybe we're weak on interviewing. Maybe we're weak on resume writing, really self-reflecting on what our skills are. And we put it off and someone to say, well, why aren't you doing X? So 
you completed your certificate in Ju- July of this year. You walked away from the Department of Justice in July. So we're now two to three months removed, depending on when you left in July. How's it going? I love it. Not only do I get to work with folks and help them grow the kind all of the things that I was looking for in making this transition it's even better than I expected it's the you know the autonomy is fulfilling the breadth and the reach is totally different you know my goal is to change the way the legal profession leads itself and leads its clients like we don't have a good reputation for how we treat each other by and large I want to change that and I'm getting a chance to change that kind of one attorney and one firm at a time, but I'm starting even already to see the ripple effects, you know, because when one person changes and grows in the way that they are looking to grow and become a more inclusive and collaborative leader, I get to see through them the impact that they're having on their team and their firm. And that's super rewarding. Going into essentially you're a small business owner now you have had to now market yourself and sell yourself how are you doing that now that you're out on your own yeah that is hard and i i think like most of us who who come up through the services it's hard to toot your own horn my take on that i hope it's coming across in how I talk about my work is not so much to toot my own horn, but but rather to talk about the values that I hold important. So I talk about what's important to me. I talk about what I think leadership is. It's trust, transparency, it's empathy, it's passion. It's not about what Ben Grimes has done. And it's not about what Ben Grimes will do for you. It's about the values that I bring to the table. And if they resonate with a client or they resonate with a firm that's looking for support, then we can do business. And that's been successful so far. But I, I try not to do too much horn tooting, but I do look for ways to get values into the into the discussion because I think that's kind of the most important driver in creating a relate a meaningful relationship with folks. So you've got some business going on. Is it about what you expected as far as your growth pattern? Has it, or has it come quicker than you anticipated or a little bit slower? And I ask this because, you know, a couple of years ago, I went out and got my real estate license and I affiliated with a brokerage. And even in, with a brokerage, you're thinking, okay, I'm part of a community here and I'm going to get fed a little bit. And it's like, no, nope, go out there and make it yourself. And you find out that you really have to figure out your own brand and figure out places to push it. It's easy when you know, the interest rates are sub 2%, but when the economy gets tight inflation, it gets a little bit tougher. And so I'm interested in, you know, you punched out at a very interesting time in the economy, I mean, from DOJ. So as far as your business development, how is that on your scale as far as how you think you're doing? So I I will caveat this with the acknowledgement that I'm in a very fortunate position. I've got a military retirement that is always going to pay the mortgage and or the food bill, depending on you know how things are going. And I've got a spouse that's working in government. And so, you know, we've got the TRICARE for life. We've got the health, you know, health insurance is not an issue. She's got the dental and visual vision insurance, you know, so, so like our needs are met. Now th- that said, this is an expensive area and 
we still like I still need to make some money. My glide path has been admittedly, I think a little bit slower than I anticipated, in part because I might have been overly optimistic. You know, I, I thought I was going to get trained, hang a shingle, and people are going to look at my background and say, holy crap, this guy, West Point, pilot, career in the military, this guy knows how to lead, and he's a lawyer, and we don't know what we're doing, and we recognize that. And I think that a lot of firms in particular, but individual lawyers as well, are reluctant to come to grips with their own shortcomings, their own vulnerabilities. And so nobody was throwing money at me when I got out. That said, I have found business. It has been slower than I had hoped, but I, I kind of thought I was planting a money tree. And as it turns out, I didn't. <laughs> and so business is developing a little bit slower than I had hoped, but absolutely on glide path for a successful, sustainable, family-supporting business. So what I'm hearing is we had a little bit of the cushion mm-hmm. to, to go ahead and, and make this leap, knowing that we may see that cushion go down a little bit, but ultimately you have the confidence that it will grow. It's just a matter of getting things rolling. I mean, I'm a small business owner who's never done this before. And so I'm learning as I go for sure. And one of the things I'm learning is it takes longer than you think it's going to take, Uh, but it's definitely not impossible. I think you're right as far as admitting the shortcomings, because take a look at a firm or anything. It doesn't even have to be law, but you know, the idea that I need a coach, whatever it is, it's hard again, to look at your own vulnerabilities or look at ways that we or our individual attorneys can improve or that, you know, it's sort of a, I don't want to say it's new, new way, but it is something that, that is becoming more and more popular. And there's old guys like me, you know, when I had this guy approach me about coaching, I was like, I don't need it. And then I was like, no, you, you know, what's it going to hurt if you get a job, then you can say no, but you know, why not look at self-improvement? And it's an interesting thing. You know, we will sign our kids up for soccer coach or gymnastic coach if we want them to improve. But I think we're reluctant to admit that there's room for improvement in ourselves. Yeah. I I think to me, there's a growingly obvious generational divide in terms of who is open to coaching, who is open to looking for ways to help themselves grow. And in firms, it's the same thing. And when I say firms, I mean legal offices generally. I use firms as a shorthand for government legal office, in-house counsel's office, nonprofit, public service office. And I use firms as just a shorthand for all legal offices. But in those settings, it's often the the older generation, I don't mean like necessarily old in age, but the but the earlier generations who are who are in leadership positions who say, well, this is just how it is when I came, this is how it was when I came up. I had a crap time. I worked all the time. I had no balance. I didn't get to see my kids. I was never home for dinner. And that's just the way it was. But newer generations of attorneys are looking for more acknowledgement of their humanity at work. And the way it was before isn't going to fly anymore. And I think that organizations that are taking this seriously are going to find ways to articulate that as a market differentiator for talent. 
Because when talent is looking for a place to go, and it, it, it's it's increasingly a, well, it, it ebbs and flows, but when it's a tight talent market, it's going to be the organizations that know how, how to articulate their concern and care for people as individuals and people who offer mechanisms to support them in their growth. And that's why I think you're seeing more coaching in law firms and, and other organizations as a perk to employment. So the name of your, your firm is BKG. Leadership Coaching is here in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore area. And according to LinkedIn, the tag is, I help lawyers in solo, small, and mid-sized law firms break through dysfunction and get to efficiency, focus, and increase profitability by unlocking their leadership potential. So the question I have for you, and of course, you know, you always hope to get a business bounce by coming on the podcast as well. So if I'm a JAG who's leaving the service and, and I'm sitting here listening to this and I'll ask on their behalf, Hey, Ben, what can you do for us leaving the service? How would it benefit us knowing that that's your focus, that you've been out of the core for seven years and you're focusing on small and mid-sized firms and helping them with this function? Is it worth us contacting you for us as we try to rebrand ourselves for our career progression? So I will tell you there are two reasons why it is useful to call me and only one of them is to work with me. The first reason, which is a non-business reason for me, is I can probably put you in touch with somebody who is focused on career coaching and can help you connect with folks in your legal, in, in your market. I just had a conversation yesterday with a former service member, not a judge advocate, but a former service member who is now a first year at a big firm out on the West Coast and was looking for ways to kind of get out of big law. And so I'm connecting him with other folks that that are in my network that might be able to help him transition out or at least see what else is out there. And I can do the same thing for transitioning JAGs, depending on where you're at and what you want to do. You know, you want to reach out and build a network. I'm happy to be part of that network for anybody listening. For folks who are, I, I think, particularly kind of mid-career military folks or end of career military folks. And by that, I mean like, you know, the 10 year, the eight to 10 year, the 20 plus year judge advocate, give me a call. We we can talk about what your leadership style is and how you can articulate that to prospective employers. Because as I am learning in my own business, talking about trust, transparency, and empathy and passion doesn't sell, right? I can like that's important to me. And and those words describe what leadership is to me. But when I talk to clients and when I talk to firms, I talk about delegation, supervision. I talk about concrete kind of granular, what does leadership look like in a granular sense on a day-to-day sense, not so much what's the philosophy of leadership. And as folks are transitioning, yes, I think I really do think that you need to understand your personal philosophy of leadership, but you also need to be able to translate that to what it looks like and what can the firm expect to see from you in that regard. And then the other piece of why they should call me is down the road, they're going to want somebody to come in and help their teams grow. And that'll be me. So going back through our history, Ben, we first connected back on July 8th. And we were hitting these topics that we just spoke about, your your retirement transition and now pivoting to full-time leadership coaching. But what other guidance or thoughts do you have for an audience that is ultimately looking to one day put, a, put away their uniform and go on to something else? 
I really have two thoughts. One is the legal world as a judge advocate feels pretty precise, but that in terms of like, you know exactly what it is you're getting into at every billet. You go to the next place and like, this is what I'm getting into. It's a precise practice of law, but it's also an insular and small practice of law. The profession is gigantic. I don't know that at year seven in my military legal practice, I would have envisioned being able to work full-time doing legal ethics. And this is not JER, this is not joint ethics regulation ethics. This is like licensure ethics. And there is a whole community of private attorneys out there who are doing this. So the world, uh, the world of potential work for judge advocates is huge. And I've heard this in many of your other interviews with folks who have gone in-house or folks who have gone to big firms and transitioned to really niche practice areas that they had no experience in before. So the world is big. I will reaffirm that for everybody. And then the other piece is, as we're trying to transition, I think the most important thing to remember is being able to articulate what you bring to the table. And part of that is the practical experience but a big piece of that is your leadership experience and your outlook on the world and your professionalism and being able to articulate that and describing how you're going to make the organization better that you're going to. That's the most important thing for me. When I was hiring at the DOJ, that's what I wanted to see. What is it are you, that you're going to bring to the table for this team? How are you going to make my team better? Great stuff. Well, Ben, I'm Winchester on my questions, but you have the uh, closing remarks, Council. I, I have really enjoyed this conversation, Tom. I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time to chat. Well, Ben, again, I told you up front before we jumped on the air here, I needed to get a couple additions in my, uh, get them complete and get them edited for the next couple of weeks. And you immediately said yes. And I thank you for your quick turn. And we will be hearing you Saturday morning. All right. Awesome. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I have loved listening. I've been a, a longtime listener, Tom, so I, it's really a treat to be part of the program. Well, I'm honored that you're listening, and I'm very thankful that you are now contributing and giving back to the community here as being the 91st guest on my show. So thank you, Ben. I love it. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.